Well, let's turn to our Bibles. We read uh, a moment ago from Mark chapter 10. Childhood is always at risk. The danger from malnutrition among the poor, from childhood illnesses, violence in the home, from the effects of divorce, from bullying at school, from child sexual predation and even trafficking, from the pressures that we find in our Western society to lower the age of consensual sex and to legalize child-adult sexual relations, growing influence of pedophiles who are gaining ground in various states here in the U.S. and in democracies worldwide, and even in the whole area of global warming. In our Western society, children are being discussed as a threat and described as such, a threat to the human race. Along with livestock and fossil fuels, children use up valuable oxygen. They're seen as contributing to global warming, the threat, a threat to the earth's resources. And these pressures from these various quarters are are set to continue. All the, the reading and research I've done, they're set to continue and become even more acute as time goes by and the propaganda machine ramps up its rhetoric. Childhood is always at risk. Sometimes even in the church. Childhood is dismissed or diminished. Children are regarded as a nuisance to be hidden away from sight, to be shuffled off to their classes so that the adults, or even adults, who want to worship can have that to themselves or or who want to have serious conversations about spiritual things can have the children safely out of sight. Childhood is always at risk. In this little vignette that we read from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, the focus goes from the parents to the disciples to Jesus. Let's follow the flow of the passage. We'll look first of all at the parents' intention. The story opens with these parents, and by the way, this feminine in some of the accounts and masculine, so it's the mums and the dads, parents trying to bring their children to Jesus. When we look at the gospel accounts in Luke, for example, the word Luke uses there is different from the word that Mark uses here. The word he uses is the word infants. The word that Matthew and Mark use Padilla can often be used, well, it can be used of an eight-day-old child. It's used of an eight-day-old child in the Bible. It's also used of a 12-year-old child. But Luke's intervention here, I think, uh, directs us to the, 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 the view that these children were, were infants or very small children. And these parents were bringing their little children to Jesus, that he might touch them, which Matthew elaborates that he might lay his hands on them and pray for them. That phrase, the laying on of hands, is a, 
is a religious expression. It's used of Jesus when He's healing the sick. It's an official action. We know that in the culture of the day, it was a custom to take young children to a holy man uh, for them to be blessed. These parents obviously believed in Jesus. They believed, perhaps, at the minimum, He was a holy man. And some of them must have seen Him as very much more than that. Their children may have been far too young for instruction, but they were not too young for prayer. And there's a lesson for these parents for not to be hesitant to bring your child to Jesus. Not to be hesitant to bring your child for baptism. To bring your child to the services. 9-11-1-6-30. Even if they don't understand a word that's being said. If we're wise, we will expose our children early on and have them present with us. I mean, we, do, we should do this in our, our own private lives. I remember when I was growing up, my grandmother would have these soirees in her drawing room. It's a very, very large room, and she would have all these very important people who wanted to come and see her. They, they looked in her as a mother in Israel, and uh, uh, she did come from, uh, from uh, kind of high society, kind of lost the money aspect of it, but she still had the style, the grandeur, and the kudos and weight of that. People would come to sit at her feet and to learn things. And it was, I remember we were made to come and sit quietly in the room listening to all these grown-ups speaking. And, and I found it interesting. I think it was good for us. I think it exposed us to, to a number of people from different walks of life, business, and academia, and so on. And we heard all of this in my grandmother's living room. It was a very good exercise. We weren't considered a nuisance. In fact, some of these nice people would give me half a crown as they left, and that was always an incentive to look forward to those occasions. By the way, that's money, old money that they don't have anymore. So, it's a good thing to be in adult company, and that that counts not just for private homes, it counts also for church. The long-term impression of seeing and hearing grown-ups singing, confessing, praying, and attending to the Word of God is powerful in its effects. One of my most vivid memories is of communion services, which were fairly regular, not once in a blue moon like we have here. They were very regular in the life of the church I grew up in. And, uh, of, and I'm reminded every time we have communion here, when our elders go out uh, to dispense uh, the bread and the wine to the congregation, I remember them being in the receiving end. Well, I, I wasn't in the receiving end. I wasn't allowed to take it at that age. But observing these men, I knew them to be businessmen, I knew them to be professors, I knew them to work in the steelworks. Uh, these were, were men of character, men of intelligence. And to see them physically coming down the aisles and, and handing out the bread and then handing out the wine and, and uh, the humility and the bearing made an impression on my childish mind. I admired those men. 
and wanted to be one of those men later. And it's good for children to be exposed to looking around and seeing adults, adults they admire, singing God's praises, praying, uh, seeing them confessing their sins and and seeing them attending to the Word of God. That has a powerful effect upon the minds of our young people, especially if we're not being treated like nuisances and consigned to the basement or packed off to the Sunday school without ever being welcomed by the adults. The lesson of these parents in this story is bring your children to Jesus. In Matthew's account, the words he uses have a liturgical ring to them. Uh, And the hands are not just the hands of healing, of disease. They are hands that transmit a blessing to the children. Today, the context, both of this incident and the Matthew one, would most certainly be a church setting. The same language that's used here is used of the first deacons in Acts chapter 6. They were brought, just like these children were brought, same word, to the apostles And after they prayed, they laid hands on them. All of the elements that Jesus uses here. In Acts 13, when the churches gathered and they were all ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit directed them to bring Barnabas and Saul before them. And when they'd fasted and they'd prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them on their way. These parents' intention was to bring their children to the Lord, to give him into their hands so that he would lay his hands upon them and pray for their children. That was their intention. Then secondly, I want you to look at the disciples' intervention. The disciples' intervention. The disciples rebuked them, that is, rebuked the parents. Why they did this is not stated but we can always guess. I wonder if they thought it was frivolous to bring children to Jesus, the great rabbi, the great teacher, the great one that they thought was the Messiah. Was it a frivolous thing to bring children to Jesus? Supposing these children cause a disruption or prove to be a distraction. We know that in that ancient society, and frankly, in many societies today, children are regarded as insignificant, having no rights. Adults or adults are important. Children are not. Might that be the reason? One thing we do know, that once again the disciples are demonstrating their dullness of mind and their inability to get Jesus and to truly understand the nature of discipleship, which as Jesus has spelt out to them, is to be humble, to be like a little child. He's already taught them that earlier on. Of course, little children, infants, for example, cannot come to Jesus, not of their own will or in their own power, nor can they understand what's going on, nor can they exercise faith as such. But you could say all of those things about unbelieving adults. You can say all of those things about unbelieving adults who come to church, they listen to the sermon, they have absolutely no idea what's being said. 
They don't understand why we're saying what we're saying or saying what we say because of their, the blindness of their hearts. Just a few, in the last chapter, in fact, we, we saw the story of a bunch of friends who brought a paralyzed man to Jesus. And Jesus recognized the faith of the friends who were bringing him, and he healed the man. And these parents were bringing their children to Jesus, that he would do something for their children even more wonderful than making them better, that he would give them a blessing. Now, I think bringing our children into the family of God, into the household of God, whether it's in a small group or whether it's here at church services, and I'm not discounting Bible school, I'm not discounting the things we put on specifically for children, but they also should be exposed to adult worship. Or else what you have is they all go through Bible school and they turn out at 18 and they've never been to services. They haven't seen the whole people of God gathered. They've not been present. And I think if you bring them with you, it helps towards cultivating a positive approach to rearing our children. We see them within the bigger picture of being in the family of God. That's where they belong, because they're our children. And it keeps us from being over-anxious. Because being over-anxious leads to us being over-protective. And being over-protective leads us to give our children the impression, or at least let them see us as being overbearing. What the disciples did in their intervention is a serious thing. C.H. Spurgeon put it like this, it must be a very great sin indeed to hinder anybody from coming to Christ. He is the only way of salvation. He who holds back any soul from Jesus is a servant of Satan and is doing his most diabolical work. These disciples couldn't be any closer to Jesus. Despite their shortcomings, they'd been with him, they walked with him, they listened to him, they talked with him, they were around him, they were influenced by him. But if they kept or tried to keep these parents from bringing their young children to Jesus, if they did it, then it must happen among Christians today as well. If they did it, and they were as close to Jesus as they were, surely we might make the same mistake ourselves. Here's a question I want to ask you. You say, well, it's a waste of time bringing a child who doesn't understand anything into the service. They'd be bored, distracted, whatever. You don't get it. You don't get the power of the Word of God. You don't get that preaching a sermon, the sermon, is not about giving you a lesson in class which you have to take notes about, write down the things you're learning. That's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that kind of thing. You want that, go to Bible school. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. It does something. It is supernatural. It goes where nothing else goes. It goes into the very heart and soul of men and women. Even if they can't understand it, it can do a miracle of grace within them. Jesus said to the wind, be still. The wind didn't understand what he was saying. 
But it did what he said. The word of God does what it says. Remember what Paul says about Timothy. He said to Timothy, from an infant, you have known the Holy Scripture. From an infant. But infants can't read the Bible. And infants can't necessarily follow you when you're reading the Bible to them. But that's what Paul says. In other words, the Holy Spirit was sowing the seeds of the Word of God in his mind and heart before he even understood those words. It's the miracle power of the Word of God. And that's what he does. That's what God does. I remember when I was older, uh, wondering why it was that I, I hadn't been converted. I didn't have a testimony to give. And I hate it when people are always putting pressure on young people in, in church to have a testimony that they must be able to give. If you're a covenant child, it's very likely that like me, you cannot remember a time when you did not love the Lord Jesus, when he wasn't second nature to you. Did you love the story of Jesus? Tell me the stories of Jesus right on my heart, every word. My mother used to sing that to me. I'd forgotten all about it till that very moment here. The Word of God is having an effect on our children. Now, in the society, back then, children had no rights, no power, no choice. They were non-productive. They didn't contribute to the, the, uh, the, econ the economy of the country. They were utterly dependent, vulnerable, often restless. But in the gospel, Jesus uses the language of little children to describe those, to include those, grown-ups even, whom society sidelines and dismisses as weak and insignificant and without merit. These disciples did wrong to the parents. The parents were bringing their children because they believed in Jesus, his power, his blessing. They did wrong to the children, denying them the presence of Jesus and the blessing of Jesus. They did wrong to the Savior. Did they really want people to think that Jesus was as stiff and starchy and self-important as they were? Because he's not. He's not. So you have the parents' intention. They wanted to bring their children to Jesus. You have the disciples' intervention. And then thirdly, we have the Lord's indignation. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, you, you can't leave theology out of any sermon, really. And I have to just deal with some bit of theology here. When Jesus saw it, was in, he was indignant. <clears throat> Remember that Jesus is one person. He's the Son of God. And he has two natures. Those two natures are not confused in any way. They don't overlap in any way. They're quite distinct. He's God and he's man in one person. 
And so when you read about Jesus in the Gospels, you have to use what we technically call partitive exegesis. What I mean by that is this. You ask yourself, who is speaking here? Is this Jesus speaking as God? Are they speaking about Jesus as God when they say he was indignant? God has no passions as we have. He's never taken off guard, never surprised by anything. Everything that ever was or is or will be appears to God all at once because God is eternal. And as God, Jesus is eternal. There's no movement of time. There is no time. Everything that ever happened or ever will appears to God in one place all at once. But he's also human. And so he shows human emotions. And here in his human nature, he's irritated by their failure to learn. He's indignant about their attitude to the children. And in chapter 9, we noticed that the disciples were trying to prevent a man from doing something in the name of Jesus, something Jesus approved of. And Jesus uses words there. He says, do not hinder him. Do not hinder him. The same word he uses here, don't hinder them. Don't stop them. Don't prevent them from coming to me. In fact, just after that event, Jesus took a child into his arms and said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me alone, but him who sent me. So they had Jesus' example. He didn't find them an irritant to be ignored or dismissed. In fact, the one who took the child on his knee and who here defends them is the eternal Son of God, the great high priest, the King of kings, by whom all things exist, the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. Why is the Lord indignant? Because he loves the little children. And if Jesus loved the children, we must love them too. He cares tenderly for them. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop and Reformed minister, says Satan specially hates children. I mean, you can see that, can't you, in the world where Satan rules? Where Satan rules, children are often killed in the womb, exploited by evil people, abused, brainwashed, demeaned, molested. Yet young as they are, they have the Savior's attention. And so they must have ours as well, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. These little children represent everybody who is insignificant and unimportant in the eyes of the world. Little children have no bargaining chips. The poor don't either. 
You think of the Roman attitude to children. The Roman attitude to children was the practice of child exposure. You put the child out overnight and left it in the, 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 in the rubbish tip at the edge of town. Here's what they used to say. If you bear a child, if it is a boy, let it be. If it's a girl, take them out and expose them. Let them die. Jesus is teaching us here that we must receive the kingdom of God as children receive things. They just take them without questioning, without self-importance, helpless, humble. And we are to receive the kingdom the way children receive a gift. That's how you become a Christian. You receive it. By receiving the offer of the kingdom of God comes through faith. You take it. In with empty hands, not wanting to exchange anything for it, but receiving it because it's freely given. This kingdom, of course, is yet to come in its fullness. That awaits Jesus' second coming. Yet right now we can receive the first fruits, the down payment, the guarantee to keep us going until we inherit it all. This little interlude may also be a prophetic rebuke on church leaders who forbid baptism to infants and young children. I pointed out earlier, Jesus uses a form of words here, the word forbid, prevent, hinder. Those are various English translations of the one Greek word. And those words, that word, the Greek word, is the word that's used later in reference to baptism. For example, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, when he's talking to Peter and he's on his uh, Mercedes-Benz chariot going towards Ethiopia from Jerusalem, and uh, they're having this conversation about the book of Isaiah, and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is converted right there in his, his, was it a Rolls Royce or a Mercedes-Benz chariot? I don't know what chariots they had then. And he, he stops his chariot and he says, See, here is water. What prevents me? What forbids me? What hinders me from being baptized? The very same word is used here. The same word is used by Peter in Acts 10. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized? And then there's a case of household baptism. What was I that I should have power to hinder God, as as Peter goes about the business of baptizing a whole household. We actually even find this word used by John the Baptist when he tried to forbid, prevent, hinder Jesus from being baptized. In Matthew chapter 3, because he kept saying, I have need to be baptized by you. I don't want to baptize you, Jesus. Now, that usage, we can make more of that than is worthy to do, of course. All we can say about that is that it might indicate an early tradition as a kind of indirect argument for child baptism. Certainly, Peter proclaims child baptism by likening it to circumcision, as uh, used in the Old Covenant. Just as in the Old Covenant, the two keys were circumcision, only for boys, and then Passover, circumcision, a sign in blood, 
looking forward to the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. But now that Jesus has risen, water, baptism, the use of water to symbolize all that Jesus accomplished by shedding his blood. And that blessing comes to men and women, boys and girls alike. And the Lord's Supper replacing Passover. Now, I love what John Calvin says about this. And I want to read it, so I don't usually, in fact, I tell students never to use long uh, quotes. So I'm going to break my own rule here and read it to you. I'll wake you up when it's done. John Calvin puts it like this. This narrative is highly useful, for it shows that Christ receives not only those who, moved by a holy desire and faith, freely approach him, but those who are not yet of age to know how much they need his grace. These little children have not yet any understanding to desire his blessing, but when they are presented to him, he gently, kindly receives them and dedicates them to the Father by a solemn act of blessing. We must observe the intention of those who present their children to Jesus. That deep-rooted conviction that the power of the Spirit is at Jesus' disposal, that he might pour it on the people of God. Jesus declares that he wishes to receive children by taking them in his arms. He not only embraces them, but he blesses them by the laying on of hands from which we infer that his grace is extended even to those who are of that little minor age. And no wonder, because the whole race of Adam is shut up under the sentence of death. For all from the least to the greatest must perish, except those who are rescued by the great Redeemer. To exclude from the grace of redemption those who are of early age would be too cruel. Infants are renewed by the Holy Spirit of God according to the capacity of their age. Until that capacity has grown and that power within them which was concealed grows by degrees and becomes manifest at the proper time, And they're able to confess their faith for themselves. By embracing them, Jesus is reckoning those children to be among his flock. That's what we believe about infant baptism. That the children become members of the church. They are members of the church at that point. When we welcome them uh, to the table later on when, when it's time for them to be able to take communion and they are professing Christ at that stage, that we're not welcoming them into the fellowship of the church. We're not welcoming them as members. They already are members. Sometimes we forget that. Don't forget that. The church is composed of believers and their children. Well, Jesus says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Kingdom of God is not ours by merit, ours by any action of our own. Kingdom of God is ours because God has willed to give it to us. 
These children illustrate that. They were brought to Jesus. They didn't come by themselves. And there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit brings us to Jesus. We don't come by ourselves. And when we bring someone to Jesus, we're bringing them to God. And when we prevent someone from coming to Jesus, we're preventing them from coming to God. And coming to Jesus is coming to God, and being blessed by Jesus is equal to being blessed by God. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is a gift, not a reward. So how are we to receive the kingdom? Maybe you're not a Christian. How do you receive the kingdom? Listen to Jesus again. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He's not asking you to think about childhood traits or traits. They're little, they're helpless. They can't resist. They're taken, lifted, embraced. But that's how you become a Christian. When Jesus said to a man called Nicodemus, who was a theologian and a leader in the Jewish church, he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. By that he meant, Nicodemus Something must be done to you in which you are passive, not active. In your very passivity, God acts to make you alive, to bring you to spiritual life. You must be born again. You can't do that. You can't decide to be born again. God brings you to new birth. And in that process, we remain passive and we receive. We don't exchange something for something else. Grace is a gift. It is not earned. So how do you become a Christian? You receive it as Jesus receives these children. Back in 1962, theologian Karl Barth was interviewed, I think in Chicago, on his only visit to the United States And he was asked how he would summarize the essence of the millions of words that he had written and published. This was his reply. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. At the end of the day, that's it. At the end of the day, that's all any of us can say. We're back In Sunday school, we're back in church as infants, as babies, as young people, saying, Jesus loves me. And if you have children, or you one day hope to have children, I want you to make this promise yours. The promise is to you and to your children, and to as many as the Lord your God will call. And Jesus promised They that come to me, I will not cast out. This was the hymn book we had in the church I grew up in. In Britain, they don't have the music. We all know the music off by heart and parts and everything else without having the music before us. All you need are the words. 
But I wanted to read, as I close, this little hymn we used to sing. We, in our morning service, we would have a children's talk, and then we'd sing a children's hymn. The children's talks were absolutely fantastic, by the way. Jesus, friend of little children, be a friend to me. Take my hand and ever keep me close to thee. Show me what my love should cherish, what too it should shun, lest my feet on harmful errands swift should run. Teach me how to grow in goodness daily as I grow. Thou hast been a child, and surely thou dost know. Step by step, O lead me onward, upward into youth, wiser, stronger, still becoming in thy truth. Never leave me, nor forsake me, ever be my friend. For I need thee from life's, <clears throat> from life's dawning to its end. <clears throat> Jesus loves me. Let's pray together. Father, me personally, reading this passage has been like a roller coaster of emotions, remembering <clears throat> childhood things <clears throat> and realizing that uh, <clears throat> the many, many years between that and now, and yet what happened then, the memories, the experiences, loving you, Lord Jesus. That hasn't changed. It's got deeper. I know more about you. I know you better. You know me altogether. But I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have been my friend throughout those years. And I pray for all of us here that we might be able to say the same thing, that Jesus loves me. In his name we pray. Amen.